violent crime in the U.S., defined as murder and non-negligent homicide and rape and robbery and aggravated assault along with gang violence, occurs at a rate that is 47% less than it was in 1991. Now, you likely don't know that because our political leaders on the right and left use the fear of violent crime to win elections and to push policies. And many of you likely don't believe me right now because we do not put in the effort to think critically about what we are being told by our preferred politicians or news source or what we read online. But I promise you, I verified that information through multiple sources and then vetted those sources. But there's another reason you probably struggle to believe me this morning. The world feels more violent, doesn't it? It feels more violent. Jean-Paul Sartre was a French philosopher, playwright, and activist who famously said, words are loaded pistols. And anywhere you want to look, you find an increasing comfort with violent rhetoric. Violent crime in the U.S. reached its lowest point in our nation's history in 2014. Though we are still near those historic lows, the crime rate rose through 2020. Now, I'm not a sociologist, so what I'm about to offer is just my opinion, but 2015 coincides exactly with the rise of violent rhetoric on social media, and I just believe that it finally metastasized in 2020. Since 2015, increasing numbers of us have started to characterize anyone who disagrees with us as other, as less than human and have felt a growing freedom to speak of them in dehumanizing ways. And the result is a willingness of even Jesus' followers to justify violence in the name of whatever cause we champion. That was reflected in a survey released just a few weeks ago by the Public Religion Research Institute. Almost a quarter of respondents said American politics have gotten so far off track that patriots may have to resort to violence to save the U.S. Words are loaded pistols. The New Testament writer and earthly brother of Jesus, James, tells us that the tongue is a fire the very world of iniquity that is set on fire by hell. Jesus tells us that the rage that we cultivate in our hearts and that finds its way to our lips and, dare I say, keyboard, is the equivalent of murder. So why are we so comfortable with violent speech? Because we don't apply the imago Dei the image of God to those that we consider our ideological enemies. So today's message, exploring the relationship with the image of God and violence, isn't going to focus on gun violence or racial violence or political violence or gender violence. Today's message is going to focus on the hate-filled rhetorical violence that far too many followers of Jesus 
have justified in our online lives and which can lead to all of those violent behaviors. Following the pattern that we have established for this series, let's dive in and let's first look at what did Jesus teach. And to do that, let's go to the one event in his life where his followers attempted to wield violence in Jesus' name. Open your Bibles, if you would please, to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. After instituting the Lord's Supper, communion, Jesus went with his disciples to prepare himself through prayer for the crucifixion that he knew awaited him. And sure enough, a mob, upon completion of his prayerful preparation, began to come at him with torches blazing in the night for an arrest. And rather than resist them, Jesus told them to proceed with what they came to do. And I want you to look at how the seed unfolds. Look at Matthew 26, 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. The disciples were primed and ready to shed blood to defend Jesus, and one of them, identified in the other Gospels as Peter, withdrew his sword from its sheath and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Now, he clearly wasn't trying to cut off his ear. He was trying to kill the guy, and he ducked at the last minute. He was trying to kill him. It seemed the only reasonable thing to do, and listen to me, in the moment... It seemed like the only faithful thing to do. But watch what Jesus says next. Look at verse 52. Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now, that saying is so ingrained in our minds that we run the danger of not thinking about it anymore. But Jesus is simply saying this, violence breeds violence. Now, this isn't a call, as a side note, to absolute pacifism. To quote C.S. Lewis, does anyone suppose that our Lord's hearers understood him to mean that if a homicidal maniac attempting to murder a third party tried to knock me out of the way that I must stand aside and let him get to the victim? Of course not. It's not what Jesus is saying. But in context... Jesus is saying and modeling that suffering personal injustice and rejecting violence as a means of personal protection and retribution is the path that he walks and that he expects his followers to walk as a general principle for life. And this isn't an isolated saying for Jesus. He repeatedly taught not returning evil for evil, and loving even our enemies. And here he is literally practicing what he preached. Then he says this, as a kind of pivot from this general proverb on violence to his specific situation, verse 53, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. In other words, he's saying, Peter, your little sword is cute. 
but I really don't need your help. And then he finishes with his main point, verse 54. But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? We must remember that this whole episode comes immediately after Jesus preparing his heart to be fully obedient to the will of God. And he is clearly and forcefully saying here that violence doesn't accomplish kingdom purposes. Violence doesn't accomplish kingdom purposes. And this is where we get down to brass tacks on our comfort with violent rhetoric. If I were to sit down and have a conversation with you about the heat of your rhetoric interpersonally and, unli- and online concerning the, uh, you know, the Marxist woke mob or the fascist right wing, you would almost immediately begin to merge your faith with your position. And hear me, that is exactly what we should do. All of our earthly convictions should be a reflection of our heavenly values. Can't we all agree that we cannot claim to be faithful followers of Jesus and say, you know what, I'm going to set this part of my life aside and the kingdom has no impact on it? Of course, we can say that's not what we should be doing. But here's what I believe we would also discover about our lives. We would discover that we justify really dehumanizing characterizations of those who are ideological opponents in the name of our faith. Or we rationalize call for civil war or violence in the name of our faith. And I've seen it on some of your feeds. Always remember, your elders and staff lurk. In other words, more and more of us have begun to think that our faith requires the dehumanization of others and requires calls for an uprising. You have perhaps convinced yourself that faithfulness requires that you resort to dehumanizing, ugly, and yes, even violent rhetoric. And listen to me, Jesus calls that murder. Listen to his words in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. There's a progression in Jesus' words there that I want you to catch. Whoever seethes with anger towards another is guilty of murder. Whoever insults another is worthy of excommunication from the Jewish community by the council, which is the judgment that he refers to there. And whoever uses a vicious pejorative of another is worthy of hell. And yet, we barely apply the brakes when we speak of President Biden or Vice President Harris or AOC or 
former President Trump or former Vice President Mike Pence or Mark Getz. Why? Because we think that accomplishing kingdom goals of, for instance, on one side, advocacy for the preborn and preservation of marriage allows us to speak of one side in dehumanizing ways and advocacy for the poor and for people of color on the other side allows us to speak of the other side in dehumanizing ways. And Jesus does not stutter. Such language and incendiary calls to action do not accomplish the advancement of the kingdom of God. Jesus taught that violence doesn't accomplish kingdom purposes. So what did Jesus do? And quite simply, he did what loving your enemies requires. Jesus modeled radical trust in God. Now, this is obviously what he's doing when he shuts down an armed defense and willingly goes with the mob to his trial. This is obviously what he's doing when he refuses to defend himself before the Jewish equivalent of the Supreme Court. This is obviously what he's doing when he refuses to defend himself before Herod and Pilate. And this is obviously what he is doing when he asks for the Father to forgive his executioners while dying naked and beaten on the cross. At each and every point, Jesus is modeling radical trust in God, His plans for His life and His protection. And this trust was rooted in how He viewed ultimate reality. For us, Jesus' words on violence and retribution are pretty words. They are suitable for framing, but they aren't really meant to be lived by. But Jesus lived by them because for Jesus, what was ultimate was what was heavenly. When he was speaking of the ability to avail himself of heavenly armies, he wasn't being poetic. He was truly within his power. And you see him live in the pocket of this reality. A few verses later, when he stands before the high priest and is asked if he believes himself to be the Messiah. Look at Matthew 26, 64. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus knew that the highest court of Jewish law paled in comparison to the high court of the heavenlies. And armed with this trust in the reality of God's supremacy, His purposes and His plans, armed with the knowledge that violence doesn't accomplish kingdom purposes, He didn't feel the need to resort to violence Himself for the sake of an earthly agenda. So we know what Jesus taught. And we know what Jesus modeled. In closing, what did he command? And simply put, Jesus commanded us to value the lives of others more than our own. And the clearest example of him doing this is when he is unpacking the ethics of kingdom living in a passage called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's there in Matthew 5. 
where he uh, says these words, which actually we spent some time looking at last week. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 38, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile with him, go two. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Do not resist the one who is evil. Live like a person who is dead to self and trust God when injustice is done to us physically, legally governmentally. He says so in a series of challenging statements that might be the most challenging that we've heard in this series on the image of God because it goes against the ethic that we are steeped in. If you hit me with your fist, I'm going to hit you with a bat. You shoot me with a gun, I'm going to strap dynamite to you. And we do this not only in our thinking about imagined violence, we do it rhetorically. I'm coming after you, and I'm going to be a handful. And I don't care if I hurt you. I don't care if I demean you. I don't care if I minimize your value to all of humanity. We are steeped in independence. We are steeped in resisting authoritarianism. And the very idea, the very thought of valuing the life of a person who despises our own is heresy in our thinking. And the idea of not speaking forcefully is deemed to be cowardly. I live an interesting life. I get challenged for being a coward by people on my right and on my left. Yay! But let's make sure we understand what this means. This doesn't mean that we cannot speak out against injustice. In fact, just as failing to defend someone physically is an injustice, failing to speak out against injustice is actually an injustice. But the principles that we've discussed today, that violence, physical or rhetorical, doesn't accomplish kingdom purposes and radical trust in God and valuing others more than ourselves must dictate how we speak out. You are not taking your cues from your media sources. You're taking your cues from the Word of God. And so we must never forget that Joe Biden is an image bearer and that Donald Trump is an image bearer and anyone who triggers you online is an image bearer. And we must all remember that when we speak out against actions and policies and words, even reprehensible actions, policies and words, that the people on the other side of that debate are bearers of the image of God. And I can feel the objection right now. Didn't Jesus speak forcefully to his opponents? Didn't Jesus call the Pharisees hypocrites and blind fools? Yes, he did. But he was actually their judge. You and I are just sinners with an internet connection. The riots of 2020 
were fueled by words. The assault on the Capitol were fueled by words, words frequently found on the social media feeds of people who claim to follow a nonviolent Savior. And going back to the beginning of our message today, words are loaded pistols. And armed with the first personal printing press in the history of humanity, we have been firing blindly for over a decade now. So part of the reason that the world feels less safe than it actually is in reality is because of us, the salt and light of the earth. So, what do we do to tone down our violent rhetoric? First, remember violence doesn't accomplish kingdom purposes. Speak out. <laughs> here's, here's something fun that happens. Sometimes I will say something and then people will go out and say, Derek said, no, Derek didn't. So let me make sure you understand what I'm saying. I'm not telling you not to speak out. Remember I said just a few minutes ago that fail, failure to speak out against an injustice is in itself an injustice. But do so with an understanding that your words aren't where the power of change lies. The battles that we wage are not grammatical. They are spiritual. Put more stock in private prayer than in public pontificating. Remember, practice radical trust in God. Our collective hysteria, and that's what it is. Especially when, when Jesus followers talk constantly about the return of Jesus in ways that say, this place is so scary, I hope he comes gets me quick. When we talk about the return of Jesus in, in fearful terms rather than hopeful terms, we are communicating to the world that we really don't trust God's ability to be our king and powerful deliverer here. And remember, value others more than yourself. Commit to never comment publicly on someone you disagree with without praying for them. And let me tell you something that I started to do when I finally woke up to the poison that social media is both in consuming and in participating. I began to realize that I had fallen into the trap of believing that I could influence opinion without a relationship. I'm just going to bark at the world, and that's going to change the world. Well, it's not. You realize how many social media users there are in the world? I'm, I hate to... No one's listening to you. No one is. There are a handful of people in the world who are influencers, and most of them have become influencers not based on substance, but based on style. You're not an influencer. I'm not an influencer. We have a pocket of people that we can influence, and you generally are not going to be able to do that by, by shooting text to them. 
and posting to them randomly online. You just can't. Make the commitment to remember that every time you feel compelled to speak out on the actions of a public figure, that that person is a bearer of the image of God and that you are not doing anything to help influence the trajectory of the world by just simply barking at them all the time. We need to repent of the ease with which we issue public rebukes of people without having any kind of relationship with them. And we need to repent of the thinking that, that people who disagree with us are not image bearers and are beneath our compassion. I believe that if followers of Jesus could have nine years ago thought before they did this, oh, that's really to make me feel better. That's not going to make a difference with anybody's life. And had just walked away that maybe the increase in violence since 2015, which even though it's still far below the historical norms and on par per 100,000 persons with where it was in 1960, I know you don't believe that, look it up. I think the reason it has seen an increase is because we just want to run our mouths. And we just don't care what we call or say about anybody who disagrees with us. Maybe the world would be better if Jesus' followers would disarm the loaded words that we have been brandishing with ease and start to really love even those with whom we fundamentally disagree and who are enemies of the kingdom of God. Begin to view them as bearers of the image. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.